0: nation Greetings and calcifications device nation I hope you're having a wonderful do a grouch a favor day I know I certainly am a lot of crazy days out there looking forward to celebrating national cabbage day Not sure I want to be in the OR with any fellow celebrants. On that particular day, got World Hippo Day coming up. No thanks, I'll skip dessert. Approaching Fat Tuesday here in LA, Lower Alabama. Mardi Gras is a big deal here. It's the original Mardi Gras, if you're taking notes. My daughter was at a Mardi Gras parade the other day and practically sustained a closed head injury from being beamed in the head with both a moon pie and a bag of candy coming high and Inside The candy had a note on it that read, and I am not making this up. We have been trying to contact you regarding your vehicle's extended warranty. These people have clearly crossed the line trying to make first contact. I know some of you are asking, what is a moon pie? It's basically a marshmallow squished between graham crackers, and they dip the whole thing in chocolate. There's nothing like a good s'mores, and this is definitely nothing like A good s'mores. The only way I can get one of these things down is to smother the whole thing in carrot cake and throw away the moon pie. You know, it wasn't that long ago here that they were literally throwing cases of these things from the floats at parade goers. And not shockingly, the subsequent injuries led to a police crackdown on throwing anything more Than a single. I think I would like to pretend it's a smooth rock in a pond, right? And just see how many heads I could skip one over. Well, if we're going to have a week of celebrating hitting people in the head with flying objects, let's just come up with our own week. Savvy listeners, remember this clarion call from last year, National Device Rep Week. It's always the week after the Super Bowl to make it easy to remember a golden opportunity for the staff at your facilities to bring gifts of food small trinkets, gifts under $100 to show their appreciation for all you do to make their cases go smoothly. Look, if your account's feign ignorance, accuse them of not caring and remind them there are no Avamed guidelines against them showering you with gifts. Well, while we're talking nationally recognized weeks, don't forget National Find a Compliance Officer A career in a different field week. This is one of my favorite weeks, personally, as we barrage our respective compliance department staff with lucrative opportunities for more money and upward mobility in fields outside of medical device. It's a win-win trust me. Well, who's me? This is Kevin Brown, your virtual ASR, and this is Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics. And today we're having a conversation with someone I consider to be the voice of the business of medicine. HSS orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Michael Ast. a most timely conversation you're going to want to hang around for. Well, we've been talking about this whole business of medicine. What is that? Exactly. Well, Let's start by defining business. Business, said Captain Obvious, business, the organized effort of individuals to produce and sell for a profit the goods and services that satisfy society's needs. Well, key word there is profit, as this thing doesn't run on air, right? So the business of medicine is basically just an organized effort of healthcare professionals to maximize delivery of goods and services for a profit to satisfy patient needs. That's my definition. So we've seen this movie before, right? The business of sports, the business of fashion, the business of music, love them or hate them, Canadian band Rush decried this whole intrusion of business into music with a hit you may remember, Spirit of the Radio. For the words of the were written
1: on the story.
0: What is wrong with the sound of salesmen? Well, if you're an HCA facility, everything. I noticed in the lyrics, words of the prophets, it was actually spelled P R O F I T S. What is wrong with profit? Absolutely nothing. This whole song was about the tension between the artistic creation and the business sides of music, which really isn't that far away from what we're talking about now, is that at one time, a surgeon really could just focus on creation, right? Delivery of care at the usual and customary fee. Remember that? And everything else just kind of took care of itself, right? Why? Because there was a lot of money coming in at the time, but then that all changed overnight when the money coming in started to decrease. We saw the same thing on the rep side, didn't we? Go into purchasing to inform them of a yearly price <laughs> increase on their implants. Remember that? It just came to a screeching halt. So now when we talk about profit, in many cases, we're talking about just trying to stay even with last year. I know that's true for a lot of surgeons. This is true for many reps, wherein just staying even can represent growth, right? All things considered. Sales rep, side note here, it has always bugged me at these national awards banquets that the rep who had a surgeon move into his or her territory takes Taking them from nothing to something, gets all the awards, all the accolades, while the rep who took a 30% loss in ASP, even after having grown their business by 27%, sits on the sidelines like the biggest loser on the beach. A little SpongeBob reference there. Because they were technically down for the year. This is wrong, in my humble opinion. And I think these award metrics need to consider what's going on these days, right? But I don't ever get invited to those meetings. Well, that, my fellow box openers, is where we are right now. How can we grow our business or just stay even with last year as we look out our pilot house window and see this looming shadow of the USS Business of Medicine right off our port bow? Well, let's shoot for not just breaking even. I have an idea on that very front that I'm going to share after the conversation. You might want to hang around for that. Well, let's look at how we respond to all this stuff, right? Great quote by Chuck Colson. Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond. Great quote. So true. We talked about three potential responses last time around. Quick review, The Undertaker. These people are so discouraged about the changes, right? The larger teams, the teams they were forced to join. The reduced commission rates. I talked to a rep yesterday about a product her company expected her to sell that had a 1.25% commission rate. Really? Really? Things that we now have to pay for that we didn't before, like shipping, couriers, even brochures. These things are all very real, by the way. The Undertaker complains to anyone and everyone within earshot constantly. No strategy, but a lot of kvetching. The Caretaker, on the other hand, sees the challenge of staying even or growing like the horse boxer on George Orwell's Animal Farm. Love that book. Says, I will work harder. I have heard that out of the mouth of so many reps. I know I've said it myself. It's a laudable goal if we weren't already tapped out and our family hardly ever saw us anyway, right? Lastly, the overtaker, this rep sees no challenges too great, doesn't complain, and is in the process right now of looking at creative ways of working smarter. As the overtaker knows, there's no more hours in the day than last year. So working harder is not a real solution. There's got to be a new way, right? Leveraging our networks, our contracts with the hospital, contracts with our distributors, social media, technology, investments. One of the smartest reps I've ever known has offset a lot of these fiscal headwinds with some really savvy rental property investments. Everything needs to be on the table And Device Nation is going to help. By the way, it was no accident that those very topics I just mentioned, well, they came right off the Foundation for Physician Advancement website. They're dealing with the same stuff we are as reps, just an amazing organization. I'll include a link in the show notes while they are linking experienced podium level surgeons with younger surgeons to help them be successful in the areas of their practice that don't include a mallet. I just marvel when I think about this parallel path that we're on with our surgeons. We talked about the reps and their responses. We're seeing the same thing with surgeons. I know undertaker surgeons, caretaker surgeons. Well, I'm just going to have to see more patients next year. And then I see the overtaker surgeons that are just looking for creative ways to add more things to their practice armamentarium. Great stuff. I think that overtaker reps need to link arms with their overtaker surgeons and work together to work towards this common goal because we're in the same boat. That business of medicine ship that they're seeing outside of their window is the same ship coming our way. And I think our next guest may have some answers for us as to what we can be doing. A huge Device Nation welcome to Dr. Michael Ast.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I do really appreciate it.
0: Dr. Ass, it's exciting to get to talk to you. You're doing a lot of amazing things. I really look forward to talking to you about the business of medicine, AACUS, uh, even a little bit on gymnastics. But first, <laughs> let's go back to Temple University. Uh, I'd love to know what put you on the path to medicine?
1: Um, you know, uh, speaking of Temple University, I was a gymnast growing up. I sort of did that uh, ever since I was about four years old. And when you're a gymnast, you get hurt all the time. And so I met this great person in the emergency room several times with a couple of broken bones, uh, who turned out to be my, my orthopedic surgeon over the years. And thinking about what I wanted to do in life, I was like, boy, that guy has a cool job. I get hurt, he comes and fixes me. And uh, we got to know each other, became a little bit of a mentor of mine. And, uh, and that kind of led me down the path. Who was it? What was his name? <laughs> his name was Mark Sherman, uh a- uh, orthopedic surgeon from uh, Staten Island, New York. Yeah, and his and and I'm not the only one. He led in that direction since his son Seth is uh, the head of sports medicine at Stanford.
0: So you end up at North Shore for your orthopedic residency, and then on to a joint fellowship at HSS, an icon in our world. What was that experience like?
1: Boy, you ever walk around a room and just be like, oh my gosh, I can't stop like fanning on everyone here. You know what I mean? Like your neck hurts from looking in each room right. it is, you know, they always, they always say like, you know, we see father standing on the shoulders of giants true. and that's true to everyone. But to someone like me who actually got to meet those giants, work with those giants and literally learn in the operating room. I mean, to talk a lot of what I talk about a lot of what we all know is that like mentorship is so important. The people you have in your life that guide your career, that guide your life are so important, and I am just the luckiest person on earth to have had some of the most incredible mentors along the way and, and my team at, at HSS, my family over there, have been a huge part of that
0: well let 's go to the here and now you 've developed quite a reputation on the business side of medicine, but tell me about your clinical practice today
1: yeah, so uh, when I left HSS uh, after my fellowship in two thousand and thirteen, I went into a private practice. In sort of the princeton new jersey area for about five years where we developed a, a big clinical practice on outpatient arthroplasty we start doing uh, uh ambulatory joint replacements in our uh, privately owned surgery center about 2014 um, and did that for my whole time there built a pretty big joints and spine program and that still remains the focus of my clinical practice so i still do uh, a lot of outpatient joint replacement primary hip and knee replacement, even a little bit of revision in the outpatient space. And then like every other joint surgeon at HSS, I'm a member of the Complex Joint Reconstruction Center. So we do a lot of revision arthroplasty, take a lot of referred revisions from outside, not just in this country, but from across the world. And so, uh, you know, I try to keep myself busy and, and pay respect and homage to those who taught me before and make sure that we're doing the right thing every day.
0: How did that ultimately lead to your interest in the business and legal side of medicine? I understand on the legal side, there might be a family connection there.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, the legal side's the easy one, right? Because my wife is an attorney who focuses on healthcare, as is her father and her brother. Wow. And so uh, I get a lot of uh, insight from that. And the business side actually comes from my private practice. You know, when I was over there, Within a couple of years of being there, I became the managing partner of the practice and had some wonderful mentors, both uh, on the business side, our uh, our CEO of the, of the group, as well as on the clinical side, a couple of my more senior partners who were really, really savvy in business, taught me a lot. And I just got to sit in some of these meetings and listen to them talk and listen to the way they, they think about medicine, which was a little different than what I knew from the academic world. Um, and within a couple of years, I was actually managing that practice. And that was really a, a great experience to see kind of how business affects the decisions we make and which way we sort of steer our ships. And then I also started onto our leadership board for our ambulatory surgery center. And when our joints and spine program came up and well, we actually started managing some other surgery centers as well, kind of helping them get those involved. And the more you get into the surgery center world, the more complicated things get and you realize that it's not just the business side, but there's a lot of uh, legal things about it. So I started talking to my wife, talking to her father, talking to her brother and trying to learn a little bit about it. And, you know, it just sort of grew from there. Then when I came back to HSS with the goal to continue that work at HSS and sort of guide the ambulatory surgery strategy moving forward, that only accelerated my ability to learn from really smart people and sit in, smart, in rooms with really smart people and just learn more and more about it. And I think, I guess one of the things I like about it is that we're not very good at it. Like physicians don't do a good job understanding the business side, understanding the legal side, and mostly it's just vocabulary lessons, a lot like medical school. So I think I saw an opportunity, right? So something that maybe I could do something positive for our community. And and that's just fed that interest since then.
0: Your name came up at AUKUS at the most recent meeting. And I'm going to read a quote from Dr. Bodner, who was actually in your presentation. He said, and I quote, This man might just save orthopedic surgery as we know it. He wins a rising star award at AUKUS, and here's why. My mailbox blew up about you and this presentation that you made out in Dallas. And uh, I just wondered if you could take us back to Dallas and tell us what it was all about.
1: Yeah, you know, this meeting was really great. This particular AUKUS meeting was great. And one of the things I really enjoyed about it was – it was one of the earlier times. We've done it a little bit in the past, but this one, you really saw a lot of the meeting take a step away from here's how you do a knee replacement, here's how you do a hip replacement, here's how you treat an infection, to some of the other aspects of what we do. I mean, there's a fantastic symposium on the sort of work-related risks and injuries that we see um, in or in or arthroplasty, which was fascinating. And our symposium, which we did on outpatient arthroplasty, we did a lot of the clinical things and a lot of the important protocol-based things. But the other thing that we did in that in that symposium was to really talk about the business and, and legal considerations when you're starting to consider transitioning arthroplasty to the ambulatory surgery center. My talk focused mostly on sort of the business side where what are your options for ownership? Can you own it on your own? What if you want to own it with the hospital, with the surgery center? How does that work if you're employed by the hospital or if you're not And then that always leads to sort of the legal understanding of well, who's allowed to own a surgery center? How much of that surgery center are they allowed to own? And what are some of the regulatory things that guide that? What are the rules? What is the anti kickback statute? Does Stark law have anything to do with it? And then in the world of, of especially of arthroplasty, as we start to see the proliferation of surgery centers, what's a certificate of need? Like, why does everyone keep telling me I need one of those? And what does it mean? How does it work? And sort of a a better understanding of that can really help our community say, wait a second, this is what's guiding our decisions and here's the things we have to work around and here's the boundaries we have to work within in order to be successful moving forward. And, And I think that's something we all could do a better job of. Certainly in our training, we don't really get a lot of that stuff. And so I think... That's why I'm so passionate about the idea of educating not just this generation of surgeons, because I think we're all a little bit behind and we could all catch up, but certainly our next generation of surgeons who really need to be the next generation of healthcare leaders in this field. And and they've got to understand the business. They've got to understand the legal principles so that they can make good decisions for our entire profession moving forward.
0: It made such a splash. I'm reading some messages in my inbox right now. People wanted to know exactly what you said, if there was a transcript or video or anything. I was wondering if you had a little red meat for some of those that were not in the audience. Just a couple key takeaways, things that you wanted to communicate up there at the podium.
1: Yeah, you know, I I think if you I'm going to break down first, here's the business side and then here's the legal side on the business side, on the business side, understand what your options are for owning a surgery center means you can do it on your own. But there's a lot of capital involved, so you're gonna need a lot of help. Either you're gonna to have to take some loans, you're gonna to have to get a big enough group together to be able to afford the types of things we need in a, in a surgery center to be able to do joint replacement. You need oh, beds for patients to stay longer, you need tools to do arthroplasty, you need power tools need helmets. Potentially, you might even want to invest in some type of technology. And so you just have to understand that you have to navigate that with some of your business partners to make sure that that capital investment is possible for you. If not, you may want to consider taking on a partner of some kind, which could either be a hospital Could be a private equity firm, could be one of these surgery center management companies, but you wanna know that all of them are options and all of them are out there. And you wanna really take a look at each of them when you're trying to make these business decisions. None are good, none are bad, none are better or worse. It's just each are very unique. So you really need to get to know the deal before you sort of sign on the dotted line. On the legal side, I think number one, what people really always ask about and always wanna understand is well, who's allowed to own the surgery center? How does that work? And it's very important. It's very important that people know what actually guides that decision. So there's something called the anti kickback statute, which is a federal law that says if you own a multi-disciplinary ambulatory surgery center, which means you do ortho and anything else, which usually in our world is is pain, right? Physiatry injections, interventional pain. That's most of the centers that we work in. Some even do ENT and eyes and GI and other things, but very often we have at least those two. Then you need to do of your outpatient eligible cases to be allowed to own that surgery center. Now, if they start talking about Stark Law, you can walk out of the room because Stark Law has nothing to do with ambulatory surgery centers. Mm -hmm. Everyone always thinks it does, but understand that Stark Law and anti-kickback statute, while they're very, very similar, are not the same. And one thing I like to do is just remind surgeons, if you're in a hospital meeting, if you're in a surgery center meeting and someone starts saying, well, you can't do that. It's bad. It's because of Stark law. You can just get up and walk out of that meeting. You're not in the meeting with the right people, right? right? You're you're in the meeting with people who are just trying to use big words to intimidate you. Right. And, And that's kind of, that's kind of the reason I like to do this because when we understand it a little better, we feel empowered to take charge. And when surgeons, when physicians run the room, Patients get better care.
0: Didn't Stark have something to do with self-referral? Correct, but it, it,
1: it specifically does not have to do with ambulatory surgery centers. So the Stark law, which is a very important statute that all of us need to understand, especially if we do anything involving ancillary revenue, the Stark law says you cannot directly refer your patients to an entity where that you have ownership in. Okay. But understand there's a lot of detail to that law in terms of ways that it doesn't apply. So they like every like everything else. There's exceptions to every rule. So there are exemptions to Stark law. For instance, you're, it's perfectly fine to send a patient of yours to an X-ray in your office, right? There's an in-office exemption for Stark. You know, you own the you own that X-ray. You're going to bill for that X-ray. You're still allowed to send your patients there because that's really for their own convenience. You're allowed to refer patients within your own practice to uh, to your other partners. You're allowed to refer patients to your physical therapy location as long as you give them an option. You can't say you must go to my physical therapy center but you certainly can say we have one right here and it is a choice for you to go to. The one thing it doesn't apply to is ambulatory surgery centers. Those are based on the anti-kickback statute, which again, sound the same, but they are different laws.
0: While we're in the Grand Hall, there was a lot of presentations this year on building your practice. And I know you've actually done some talk on personal branding. And I was just curious what your thoughts are in terms of that concept and building your practice.
1: Yeah. You know, ultimately, I think we all need to recognize in the past, medicine wasn't such a consumer-driven market, right? In the past, there was the one doctor who had their shingle and everybody went to them. Nowadays, patients have become much more like consumers. They have a lot more access to information. They have a lot more access to travel. They have a lot more access access to telemedicine and digital care. So to a certain extent, it's important to understand your brand and build your brand. This is usually a, a talk I give to like residents, fellows, and very young attendings. Um, just in terms of understanding, number one, the best way to build your brand is to do a good job. And I think some of us get focus too early on on, well, I need a social media presence and I need to be uh, you know, a, a this and a that on this committee, on that committee. I need to be president of this. In the beginning, what you really need to do is just do a good job. Take good care of patients. Take everything that walked into your office. That's the best way you're going to build your brand, especially locally. you know It's cool to have a big presence on LinkedIn and God bless all of my colleagues who do that. I think it's great. I, I do it too. I think it's awesome. But remember, the vast majority of referrals come from the nurses in the hospital. They come from the the people in your office. So when you're doing a good job in your day-to-day care of patients, that's the best way to build your brand. Beyond that, though, there is a little bit of an understanding of how to market yourself, how to do some market analysis and understand where are you getting patients from. Is there a region in your area that's a bit underserved? Maybe that's where you want to tell your practice, hey, that's where our new office should be. Maybe that's where you want to do a couple of these dinners to find some of the primary care providers or referral providers that you can meet with, that you can create relationships with, because that can also do a really great job of building your brand.
0: Do you have any opinions uh, for the young surgeon looking at all the different social media platforms out there as to which one seems to be the most efficacious, so to speak, in connecting with patients?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because it sort of depends on who your patient population is. Amazingly, you know, Facebook is actually incredibly popular with some of the older generation of patients. So you're an arthroplasty surgeon, that might be a one you might look at that very few of us actually use. LinkedIn, as you know, I mean, obviously it, that's how you and I even know each other uh, to a certain extent, is a great way to communicate with our colleagues. So if you're trying to get the word out to our colleagues, it really is a fantastic way. Instagram has become a very powerful player in, uh, in patient, direct to patient sort of conversations and engaging patients and I think that a lot of people go to Instagram for some basic information. Um, but shockingly, like the second biggest search engine in the world is YouTube. Wow. And that's one that we really don't use a lot. And so these are opportunities if you start to work within some of these social, these different types of social media and online presence tools that may benefit our, the sort of next generation of surgeons building their brand.
0: While we're at the AUKUS meeting, was there any presentations that caught your ear and your eye that you said, wow, that's really good stuff. That inspired me.
1: The great thing that I saw at this particular meeting also was sort of an influx of some of the younger presenters. I mean, there's a great uh, caring for a diverse population symposium that was done, and Almost every face on that uh, on that panel was some, was a newer or younger surgeon. And I think that's awesome. I'm, I'm I'm a huge believer in we need to get our next generation of leaders up and running, up and moving. And because I think the sooner you bring people into leadership roles, the sooner they feel comfortable with that and then take things in their own direction, because it's always the next generation of surgeons that are going to decide the future for all of us. So that was actually more than anything what caught my attention. And like I said before, I really liked a couple of the sort of non clinically focused, uh, non clinically focused symposia. I just think that that's a nice thing for us in a way, a real value to the membership of AUKUS to say, Hey, yes, we want to make sure you can all do a great total knee, great total hip, great revision. But we also want to make sure everyone takes a bigger, more holistic look at our practices and make sure that our lives are good, make sure that our patients are taken care of and make sure that we're creating and maintaining a sustainable healthcare system long-term.
0: Question on the metal and plastic as we transition over to the exhibit hall. Was there anything that you saw there? You were like, wow.
1: Yeah, I mean, specifically in the device world, what I saw was a whole new bunch of players. I mean, every year I feel like there are more companies, more new entrants or late entrants into the world of metal and plastic. And a lot of them are really there in a way to try to sort of drive down costs or increase efficiencies. And I think this is all being driven by the transition to outpatient surgery. You know, I I work with many of the big companies and they've all sort of really put a focus on, we've got to figure out a way to win in the ambulatory surgery space. We've got to figure out a way to streamline our trades, to make our implants uh, more predictable, to streamline not just the surgery itself, but the entire supply chain to make it easier for smaller centers with uh, smaller footprints and smaller infrastructure to be able to do cases. And I think some of these newer entrants, because they're not coming from a traditional model, they're starting there. And that gives them a huge head start, and I think it's been interesting to watch a bunch of people jump into this, uh, into this arena.
0: I had the privilege of being in that room before it became what it became. And watching all the, the workers coming in and unpacking everything. And I was just genuinely shocked at how many companies were exhibiting there that sold hip and knee replacements. So many I had never heard of before.
1: And, and it's amazing. You know, uh, we've been going to, to that same hotel for several years now. And every year that room gets more and more crowded. You feel like it, it stretches further and further to the back of the room with all these new and interesting, uh, all these new and interesting companies. And it's just, it's really been amazing because if you think back 10 years, this meeting was pretty small. There weren't a lot, you know, there were the big four back then it was the big five and maybe one or two people. And now, like you said, the place is just exploding. And It's exploding, not just with metal and plastic companies, but with technology companies with companies uh, that are helping partner with surgeons to do things outside of the operating room, whether it's with their surgery centers, whether it's in a business perspective or other things. And I think that's really fascinating to see too, because as the program itself is maturing in its ability to provide information outside of the operating room, the exhibit hall is doing the exact same thing. So it's really kind of fascinating to watch.
0: You know, you talked about a smaller footprint. There's a lot of work out there that's got your name on it about handheld navigation and just thoughts about technology in the surgery center. When a lot of people hear the word technology, they hear additional costs. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on balancing the technological push into our space with the cost constraints of the ASC.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating topic and we could talk about this for five hours, but like when it comes down to to, like trying to say it succinctly, I think there's a lot of value to technology in the ambulatory surgery space, but it's not always as clear as it seems. So one might say, well, there's a capital cost or you're making each case more expensive with this particular technology or that particular technology. But If that technology also decreases the number of trays you use, allows you to manage supply chain in some way, manages to decrease the inventory you need in the center, allows you to do one more case a day, whatever those things are, all of a sudden the per case cost becomes a lot less important. And this is where I think just a very, very little bit of business education really helps surgeons because we are so focused on like, well, my case cost more today. That's bad. That's that's a, sort of an oversimplified view of the economics of an ambulatory surgery center right. because if you don't think about what costs you're saving on the back end or what you're streamlining on the back end, you sort of miss the point. And so I think if anything, my only recommendation to people is take a look. Like, don't be so quick to say, no, this technology is more expensive. It's going to add six hundred dollars a case. That can't be good. That's not always true because if you cut out two trays and do one more case a day, you've paid for every single one of those pieces of technology
0: for a month. Very good point. I know you're doing work at HSS in the Innovation Center. I'd like to hear a little bit about what's going on there and and put your future cap on and and tell me what you see over the horizon on the technology front.
1: Earlier this year, I took over as the Chief Medical Innovation Officer for HSS. I'm the vice chair of what we call the HSS Innovation Institute, which is a, uh, a sort of overarching group Um, Among a lot of the advancements going on uh, in the world of HSS and how they see it in the future, we kind of break the Innovation Institute into kind of three parts. One is devices, exactly what your question alluded to. The other is care delivery. So really trying to innovate not just on uh, we've got this new widget and it's going to do something, but on sort of how do we look at care delivery across the board with digital health, with the concept of changing the way that we get paid for for the work we do sort of moving away from fever service medicine. And then there's life sciences, which is a lot about uh, new medications, new ways to treat things. And that a lot of it is run by our autoimmune center, our rheumatology uh, doctors and and providers who are creating new medications for lupus and for things really, really exciting, um, but not necessarily in the wheelhouse of, of the things that I do on a daily basis from the device part of it the beautiful thing about HSS is we've got 150 surgeons all of whom are very very bright like all the other orthopedic surgeons in America we've got great ideas and great people the nice thing about our innovation centers we also have support for those people so when we have one of our hand surgeons create a new wrist implant or a new implant for something in the hand or fingers all of a sudden it's not just an idea that they have to shop around and figure out but they can bring it to us at the innovation institute and we can help them develop it bring it To FDA approval and either market it individually or sell it to one of the big companies at that point. And I think that's just a nice thing that we have because of the sort of resources of our institution. My most interesting thing, the the thing I like the most is actually care delivery, understanding value, because I don't think we're going to survive in a fee for service world forever. You know, we talk about it a lot that, oh, we're going to value based care, oh, we're going to value based care. And a lot of people don't really know what that means or don't really know how that change would happen. But I think if that change is led by physicians and not by payers, it's probably the greatest thing we can do to create a sustainable healthcare system long-term. So the integration of digital access points for patients, the concept of longitudinal risk-based care where we say, okay, we're going to take on the musculoskeletal care for 100,000 patients for the next 10 years, and we're going to spend the money however we think it's appropriate, is going to cut down on the overuse of unnecessary care, probably also cut down on unnecessary surgery if it's not right for them, but also get patients to surgery more quickly when it is correct for them, and allow us to sort of control that cost the whole way through with appropriately aligned incentives. And that's really the only way you put the patient at the center, because fee-for-service care really puts the the procedures at the center, which just isn't a long-term sustainable solution to doing the best thing for our patients. And in the Innovation Institute, we spend a lot of time working with our with the HSS Value Center, with our HSS Health, our digital platform, and with our surgeon colleagues to try to help navigate that, guide that with our direct-to-employer strategies, with our talks and some of the with some of the payers, including CMS. And I think that's a very, very interesting part of the future that we need to really focus on making sure physicians lead that discussion.
0: You think that CMS needs to step up at some point and honor what y'all have done to bring costs down, with maybe a reimbursement trajectory going the other direction.
1: Uh, obviously, the answer is yes. <laughs> th- they should. Whether or not I think it's realistic that it'll ever happen is unclear. You know, the real problem we have is budget neutrality. They've sort of got an amount of money to spend, and it's never going to change. Right. And so I think, I think while I would love well, the answer is yes, I want to send up a, a plane to write in skywriting. Hey, we save, we change people's lives. We make things so much better. Stop paying us less money what's more, what's probably more likely is if we can get them into a better conversation about, okay, you think that on a fee-for-service basis, you want to pay us less and less and less. Well, let's stop talking about fee-for-service. When you look at CJR, the bundled payment program, it did a great job of saving CMS money. And it it reimbursed surgeons at a higher rate when they did a good job. Now you're starting to talk about a win-win. And I think we really need to try to change the conversation from an argument between them and us, which just never works out well for anybody and make it more of a, how can we partner together? We understand we have so many dollars to spend. How can we partner together to make sure that we're appropriately reimbursed for the excellent value care we provide, right? The excellent quality of care we provide while not going over the constraints of the federal budget, right? Cause we can't continue to have healthcare care run in 20%, 25%, 30% of federal spending, right? No no civilized nation can support that level of cost and still provide care to patients.
0: One of the things that I saw out at Accus that was pretty exciting was just the innovation in the space of wearables, patient engagement platforms. It seems like every company is racing to produce a platform in that space. And just wondering if you have any thoughts on it.
1: Yeah, you know, I think... All of these technologies are really going to let us continue to drive value in the cost we do in, in the care we provide wearables patient engagement platforms things like this seem like an obvious opportunity given the level of technology that exists in all the other sectors of the market being able to remind our patients to make sure that they've seen their medical doctor, that they've gotten their pre-admission testing, all these things will cut down on the number of cancellations we have. Cancellations are super costly. They're costly in the hospital. They're costly in an ambulatory surgery center. And so any way we can limit those is great. And early intervention when a patient's not doing well post-op is the same thing. We want to get to patients early, know who's at risk of a bad outcome and be able to do something about it quickly. And especially the combination of wearables like sensors to track range of motion, sensors to track how much people are walking and doing. This is just the tip of the iceberg in regards to what we can do. You know, one of the fascinating collaborations we've been doing with the HSS Innovation Institute is with a group called Tesla Suit that literally has a what looks like a wetsuit that a patient can put on. It's got sensors everywhere, and they can walk around for two weeks in this thing, and we can learn everything about how their body mechanics work, how their hips and spine interact, how their knee interacts, all the things we're just starting to really grapple with in terms of the, the sort of relationship between one joint and the next. We can really outline in incredible detail, then put it on them afterwards and see how it changed. Okay. Right. These are the kind of things that the future will look like. And they're building other companies are building this into like little sleeves. You can put a knee sleeve or an elbow sleeve, you know, what, whatever you want to do. And this is really the future of personalized medicine, where we start to gather huge amounts of data on exactly how this particular patient moves before surgery, what their deficits are, what they need to work on, understand who needs physical therapy before surgery, who doesn't, who needs physical therapy after surgery, who doesn't, who can get away with just a virtual physical therapy platform and a wearable and who really needs intensive in-person physical therapy because they're not gonna do well on their own, right? This is the future where we start to say every patient is an individual. And individualized medicine is better medicine. It's more complicated medicine. It's a little harder and labor-intensive on our end. But if you were the patient, right, like how I started my orthopedic journey as the patient, you sort of recognize that that's the value we can bring to people. The more personalized a journey we can create, the better the patients are gonna do, and realistically, the better the value and care we
0: can provide. Speaking of the future, doctor, a lot of robotic technology being shown at the meeting. And and I was just curious if you had to put money on a wager at Las Vegas, you think robotics is going to carry the day for the next 10, 15 years? Or do you see a disruptive technology coming along and, and supplanting that in the near term?
1: Um, you know, there's never been an industry in the world that robotics entered and then left. Like it's just never happened. So I think that the reproducibility associated with robotics is here to stay. Now, it won't be the robots we're looking at right now. Realistically, in the world of robotics, our robots are, are very they are early, right? They're very early generation. They're very, they've got a lot left to innovate on. But I do think that some type of robotics, some type of technology to eliminate the outliers, to standardize the accuracy of us carrying out our surgical plans is here to stay at least for the next 10 or 15 years. And maybe it's here to stay forever in some of these more complicated robotic systems. But I think the concept behind them to eliminate our errors built into just being humans and having a difficult time measuring things I think that's here to stay.
0: Well, Dr. Ast, I want to put you on the podium for a second. And, uh, I I know there's a lot of surgeons coming into our space now and looking at this environment they're in and looking for advice. What do you think physicians and, and others in healthcare need to do in today's environment?
1: I think the number one thing we need to do is always keep learning. You know, we always learn about more about surgery, right? We always learn the newest surgical technique. We're all trying to see that learning about the newest technology. Don't stop your learning there. Learn about our healthcare environment. Learn about business. Learn about law. You know, the number of surgeons getting MBAs now, I think is great. The number of surgeons getting involved at the level of the C-suite is great. Our goal should be that every healthcare institution in this country is run by a physician. You know, we started recently the Foundation for Physician Advancement it's a nonprofit organization that's focused entirely on teaching business and legal principles to physicians and mostly focused on, uh, mostly focused on fellows, uh, senior level residents, young attendings, but open to all. And this was started by surgeons. This was started by a group of surgeons who just saw this opportunity that we want to help people find the right ways to learn this stuff in the future and find the right ways to keep becoming more educated on this so that they can take those leadership roles in
0: the future. The Foundation for Physician Advancement. Is there a website out there that listeners can learn more about it?
1: If they just Google that, they're going to find it right away. There is a website. The website has some of our upcoming meetings next year. We do sort of small local regional meetings to make it very convenient for people. Um, and I encourage anyone interested, especially some of our younger surgeons, some of our younger surgeon colleagues, residents, fellows who might be listening to this, um, but anybody who's interested in this, come on by, check it out. Again, it's a completely nonprofit organization. Nobody's there to make any money. I just think th- those of us who've started this, which includes Dr. Chen, uh, who ran last week's AUKUS meeting, um, what we really want to do is provide people a place to learn this stuff because you know we know where to go to learn about hips and knees, we know where to go to learn about the, the next generation of technology. What we don't always know where to go is, well, where do I find out more information about this? How do I learn about the business of medicine? And so we created this organization to allow people to know the answer to that as well.
0: Just a great opportunity in today's environment. February 26th, up in Greensboro, North Carolina.
1: The, the other thing, Kevin, just to sort of finish out that last point, yeah. the, you know, the the Academy and AUKUS have also done a really good job of starting this level of education too. You know, there's a business course at the office meeting, there it's a pre-meeting course that they did a wonderful job this year. Uh, Mike Bolanese from Duke ran that meeting and, and did a wonderful, wonderful job. People should absolutely consider that next year. The Academy has several symposia this year, several ICLs this year, and an entire business course. Again, I think what's great is our societies have started to recognize this need as well, and many of them have done a wonderful, wonderful job of starting to... Uh, really bring this into their world and make sure that their membership have this available for them as well. Even our regional societies like Eastern Orthopedic Association um, and, and the Southern Orthopedic Association have run small business courses during their uh, annual meetings so i encourage people really just to sort of open their eyes up and say hey like where where might i find this because there's probably more opportunities out there than they realize and if anybody just can't figure out where to go and wants to know just just call me just you know shoot me an email call me whatever you want i uh, i i'm always here to be a resource for our for our profession that's really what uh, I want to be able to do when I look back at my career.
0: That's the mark of mentoring and a legacy right there. When I looked at the program and I saw that Dr. Polonese had, had a meeting for building a practice, it was basically all morning and into the afternoon. And I thought, this is awesome stuff. Because I would imagine that uh, many of the older surgeons in today's environment would have wished to have had access to something like that early in their career.
1: And what was amazing, because you know, I was on faculty for that part of the meeting as well, What was so cool was the room was not just filled with surgeons. There were healthcare administrators, there were nurses, there were physician extenders. It was really a great coming together of a lot of the people we interact with in our professional lives saying, okay, we all recognize we need to learn more about this. And the program they put together was really great. Everything from value-based care to the basics of billing and coding to how to run your practice. I mean, it really kind of touched on a lot of things. And, And again, Bolo did a great job with that. Antonia did a great job making sure that that got the attention it deserved. Um, within the meeting, so I think again there are more and more opportunities every year, and so you know all 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 we need to do is find the opportunity that fits in our. Uh, fits in our timing, fits in our world, and hopefully take advantage of it.
0: Any advice to reps in this space? Uh, how can we be bringing value in this era of change and helping out uh, within our scope of service?
1: You know, I'll tell you, I, I talk probably more about this with my vendor partners than anyone else because most of them are business people, right? They actually understand business, and a lot of times they joke about how bad of business people we all are, which is probably true. <laughs> um, You know, I think as a vendor partner to a surgeon, just reminding them that there's more out there than the latest technology, there's more out there than the, you know, than the newest gizmo, and say, like, hey, you know, have you thought about going to one of these other courses? Talking about the opportunities that are available out there, or, and and this is kind of the simplest thing, just talk to the surgeons about business. Be like, hey, by the way, this is what we're doing. Do you, do you know what? A pro forma is have you ever understood what marketing looks like have you ever done a market analysis of your local area and where your business opportunities might be because some of these are just new words to surgeons and we don't sort of know who to talk to about it because as we all know surgeons don't like to ask questions or look uneducated about a particular topic so broaching the subject with your surgeon partners can can be enough to really start a good conversation that can be very positive uh, for them and I will commend many of the companies out there who have started to include small bits about business of medicine in some of their local meetings, in some of their, you know, meetings, especially focused on residents and fellows. I think it's fantastic. I think rec- the recognition from our partners in industry of the importance of that, uh, it really, uh, should not be understated in regards to its value to us as surgeons
0: well i have to agree with dr bodner you and the work that you're doing i believe will save orthopedic surgery as we know it and <laughs> just amazing work i just gotta say a great job thank you i really appreciate you coming on the show to share your story and and what has you excited
1: thank you so much and it's truly humbling for for people to say nice things about me i I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. really appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience today, and and just really want to thank you for that.
0: What an amazing conversation, and what an amazing surgeon Dr. Michael asked. So appreciative he came on and just doing really exciting things, helping the people around him. I cannot wait... To go to that first foundation for physician advancement meeting, I know that's just going to be so exciting. Well, something I am particularly excited to bring to the Device Nation audience is Inducebiologics.com. I remember when Infuse first came out. Great product. In some circumstances, it worked too well, right? And I always thought to myself, somebody's going to come up with something to compete with them eventually. Well, here we are. In 2022, URIST NMP does that name ring a bell? Dr. Marshall URIST was the gentleman who discovered BMPs, and this product, URIST NMP, came out of the incredible work, the voluminous work done at his lab. URIST NMP what does the NMP stand for? Natural Matrix Protein. It's a process that liberates non collagenous proteins, NCPs. Trapped within bone particles, making them available to guide bone regeneration. Unlock and express. There's your tagline for you. I like this product because it's more osteoinductive. It's got multiple growth factors, form factors that you know and love. The obligatory sponge, but then it's got particulates and my personal favorite, fibers to keep that graft exactly where it needs to stay. Does this all sound good? Well, guess what? It gets even better. One thing that I have heard from many people over the years is complaints from purchasing about the price of Infuse. So if you could go to your connections in trauma and spine, that's another thing I like about it, multiple indications. If you could go to your connections in these spaces and say, I have a product that performs at this level at a significantly lower price point. You think people would at least be willing to hear you out? I think they would. Check out the website at inducebiologics.com. And if you think, hey, this is a product I want to add to my bag, then you're going to want to contact Nick at induce-surgical.com. That's Nick at induce-surgical.com. Tell him Device Nation sent you. I only want 1.25% commission. (laughs) See how we brought it full circle? I hope this product helps you grow this thing. Forget that break even stuff, right? So get out there and have a great week. Say something nice to a grouch. Try a Moon Pie. It will be very (laughs) underwhelming, I promise. And I look forward to seeing you all next time as we unpack this business of medicine together mm